0: and welcome back to this week's episode of Let's Chat Ethics. I'm your co-host, Ariana,
1: And I'm your other co-host, Amanda.
0: And this week we're joined by Mark Van Mill, who is the AI Ethics Lead at KPMG in the Netherlands. His role involves working on AI governance and algorithm audits to enable trustworthy and responsible AI. He's also a regular public speaker on the topics and has a background in data science. So we're excited for you to hear this week's episode where Mark talks a bit about his role at KPMG, AI auditing, and we get onto the usual topic, the hot topic that's on everyone's mind at the moment and every feed, Twitter, LinkedIn. You know we can't get enough of it apparently, Chat GPT. Uh, so we hope you enjoy this week's episode, and we look forward to hearing any feedback. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. We're really excited to have you and to hear about your experience um, in Responsible AI. So we also had someone recently who's a Responsible AI Program Manager at Google. So I wanted to ask you a similar question um, that we asked her. So what does Responsible AI mean to you? And I guess what is Responsible AI in the work that you do and what does that look like?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Happy uh, t- to uh, to speak to you. Um, right to the nitty gritty, right? Um, yeah, right responsible AI. <laughs> yeah, the, right in, I like it. Um, so yeah, maybe good to mention, um, so the team I work for at KPMG, we are concerned with what we call trustworthy AI, but you can also argue, you can also call it responsible AI, I guess. Um, what it means to me or to us, uh, I always tell people I'm in the AI for not bad business Uh, and not the AI AI for good business. So (laughs) if if you say AI for good, people typically associate that with uh, projects involving AI for, let's say, the good of society, uh, against poverty, uh, crime, that kind of stuff. But we are much more in the, I would say, risk mitigation business. So that's what I mean with AI for not bad. Um, Some people want to do good with AI with data. Other people are trying to prevent AI from going wrong, essentially. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I do. Um, I think it's just as important. Um, and then, yeah, we're, of course, we're touching upon the topic of auditing, for instance, right? And yeah, giving assurance uh, about systems. Um, you also need those people. Um, and in practice, I would argue, well, trustworthy AI or responsible AI has a lot to do with um, reliability, so I feel trust is, um, an essential component of trust is being reliable. Yeah, so there's, a, there's usually a misconception people have that uh, responsible AI or trustworthy AI is mainly about explainability. Yeah, so explaining how the, the inner workings of a system or um, how the system contributed to your, uh, for instance, to a recommendation uh, that impacts you as an individual. But in practice, I feel these systems or trustworthy or responsibility has much more to do with reliability. So you can take off an example in your daily life. Um, Let's say somebody promises to do something, but he or she doesn't. Maybe he or she has a very good reason, a very valid reason, right? So the explainability is very high. But if this happens too frequently, at some point in time, you will stop trusting the person, right? The, The person is simply not trustworthy. So we approach it from a similar angle.
1: I think that's actually a really interesting. I, I think I never thought about those two as being, I guess they're not opposed, but uh, two sides of um, trustworthiness. And I, I liked your you know, your um, analogy of comparing it to a person because I think it's yeah, very, very um, my words are failing me already, um, pointed a very good example, <laughs> I guess. Yes, sorry. <laughs>
2: Um. I, I also sometimes give the example of an airplane, so let's say that you, um, let's say you have two, two different kinds of airplanes, one of them is brand new, but you have the entire specification, you have the whole blueprint of an airplane, let's assume you can also understand it, most people can't, but let's for the sake of argument assume you could uh, understand the complete schematics of the airplane, but it has never flew before. And let's say you have an airplane that is well, maybe flew already a hundred times, it's been audited, it's been tested, and you have no idea how it works. Well, in which plane would you rather, which plane would you rather step into? I would argue the second one. Um, and this is, of course, the whole business case for auditing, essentially, right? Uh, you not having the expertise yourself, but basically putting the trust into this, let's say, it's stamp of approval of a qualified third party that does it for you, essentially
0: yeah no I think I think that's yeah I think that's a really really good explanation for it especially when you when you think of an aeroplane no one can deny that they want the ultimate safety and to be you know in a very reliable position like you said when you're flying so I think that yeah there's a strong case for AI auditing which I think now we're seeing with regulations that independent audit will be I guess the the way to ensure that we're complying with the regulations and something that businesses are i guess grap- grappling with right now trying to see if they're ready or you know don't know what's um what that means quite yet in in many cases so yeah sorry Amanda I can tell you what to say <laughs> there.
1: oh it's yeah, just um uh, when you give the example of the airplane i was thinking about a paper that um i published with two of my colleagues um actually very recently it's a, like a viewpoint paper about um, normal accidents. I don't know if you've heard of the framework of normal accidents, but um, it was proposed in the 70s, I think, by this guy, Charles Perrault. And the idea is that when you have a system that's sufficiently complex and sufficiently tightly coupled, so all the components uh, are very dependent on each other, like an airplane or like a nuclear power plant, these are the like examples that he gave because in the seventies we didn't have uh, well, I guess we had Eliza, but
2: um. gosh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: um but so he argues that once you reach a certain level of complexity and and coupling that um accidents, some accidents are um inevitable but also unpredictable, like they will happen, and we cannot uh, so I'm actually curious from. Uh, your point of view with uh, you do auditing and all of that, I guess you're part of what you're trying to do is to uh, have some foresight as to the um, kind of accidents, for example, that might happen or maybe not accidents. <laughs> I don't know.
2: <laughs> uh, so you're basically saying if the, the complexity or let's or the entropy is uh, increases, it, it becomes more and more difficult to, let's say, a priori think of all the use case and scenarios that could happen. Is that, is that kind of what you're... Yeah, that's what you're kind of where or? it's
1: going, right? That um, Yeah, once you get to a certain level of complexity, yeah, it's impossible to really think of all the test cases and all the scenarios. Um,
2: no, that, that's true, because I, I actually have a background in computer science, so I used to be a programmer. And if I were... I don't do it any more actively, in the, but in the past, I, I did a lot of coding. and when we were developing a, let's, let's call it a, a traditional IT system, it was actually quite easy to uh, come up with uh, test cases. Yeah? so you would usually, uh, usually would create a function and the function would do something and you could really specify the input, the output and the range of everything that was allowed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could even write exceptions. Um, actually, if you thought about it, uh, you could specify the entire behavior of the function just in comments. And then actually creating the code itself was just a uh, very trivial exercise, actually, right? If you, it's my day to if you be. do proper coding, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, So that is that's really uh, that's typical software engineering. But indeed, eh, so if you use a non-deterministic system, here, or some kind of self-learning, unsupervised machine learning system, it becomes very difficult, if not near impossible, to a priori think of all the scenarios. Uh, well, first of all, that can happen, or that can lead uh, or to the specific features or use cases that can contribute to, let's say, an unwanted scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you go all the way to the other, spe- other end of the spectrum, like things like deep learning, where uh, yeah, the feature space is inherently too complex for us to understand, yeah. because that is the whole business case for deep learning, right? We, uh, it takes too long or it's too complex for, to do it ourselves. So that's why we resort to something like that. So we can never think of all everything that can go wrong in advance. Um, maybe to answer your question, <laughs> I just explained the problem. Um, um, it's true. So if, if, if we encounter a very complex machine learning system, and I would say in, in reality or in practice, there are not that many around at organizations, but let's say we encounter one as an auditor um, or third party, let's say a peer review peer reviewer, you have different strategies, right? So you can, um, you can look at the algorithm itself, the code. Uh, you can try to reperform it uh, or write test cases, but if that's not possible, you can also look, for instance, at, okay, how did the algorithm came to be? So what I mean by that hey, are the, the people who worked on it qualified. Um, is the output result in alignment with the business case, for instance? Um, are the chosen performance criteria Relevant? Do they make sense, right? Um, Why did you use accuracy, for instance? Maybe area under the curve would make more sense. Uh, Also, these these general IT controls, eh? like um, issues related with uh, respect to, for instance, security or skills and capabilities. All these questions. um, uh, You can also look at that. So you're looking not only at the individual algorithm or machine learning system, but at the whole development process. And that also gives you a little bit of a feeling of uh, first of all, how it came to be, and if it actually does what it does, the system, right? Um, for instance, if you do fi- yeah, a lot of auditing in, in financial auditing, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it's a black box, a financial statement, but to some degree it is, right? A lot of these firms they use samples, for instance. Yeah? So they they don't look at all the results or all the processes that would have been too much, uh, but instead they yeah they look at they they take a sample. Or for instance, financial transactions that have taken place during the year, and based on that, they give some reasonable assurance about the performance of the process. Or also, you can uh, do the same. You can apply the same methodology to a system, an AI system, essentially.
1: Thank you. Do you think um, like trying to do more explainability? I don't know. I'm also thinking about. before we started recording, we were talking about the... Well, I mentioned rather than really properly discussing the GPT-4 paper and, for example, how they really don't explain anything about how the system actually is working and all of these things. Um, and at the same time, the pitch is to pitch it as a, as a tool, for example, and you know, providing an API and all of those things so that other people can um, use GPT-4 um and uh my brain one second <laughs> yes so uh when you have a yeah such a system that you don't really know how it's working and yet it's being plugged into other systems and you have no necessarily no really good way of testing it especially something like gpt4 that i mean the inputs you can have are you know the space is kind of infinite um I don't know, I guess, do you have any thoughts or comments on that?
2: Yeah, I have to admit, my, my feed has been dominated by GPT 4 posts. And
0: making waves lately. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think everyone's, every conversation I have in work, outside work, people who don't work in tech, everyone is talking about it. It's, it seems to be, yeah, the, the talk of the town. <laughs>
2: Yeah, my, my feed only consisted of posts about this. So that was also a reason for me to uh, to not read them yet. But um, I, I did manage to get a, a glimpse of it. So apparently you can also upload things, right? I saw a guy, I think, uploading a, uh, even a, a, a handwritten description of something. And basically the system transformed it into a whole website, I think with an animation and apparently valid the JavaScript code and that kind of stuff, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, yeah, so I'm I, I haven't tested the new functionalities yet, but it looks quite impressive. But with respect to uh ChatGPT 3 also, I think the chatbots aren't really new, right? So chatbots have been around since forever. Um, well, not forever, but they're they're not at least in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're they're not that new. So um, it's just I think the first time we're essentially a chatbot, that's what it is just performs really, really well, Mm -hmm. because in the past you would get quite frustrated, right? With Every every website has a chatbot that doesn't work, or it gives you the wrong answer. So this is also why I think there are some companies who are now like, oh, we also need a large language model of our own, right? And I'm like, no, 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 you don't don't understand, you don't need this. Um, ChatGPT has only set a new bar with respect to uh, certain, uh, let's say, expectations, output expectations from consumers, right? So it, it, it only means that you cannot get away anymore with a bad chatbot, for instance, right? Same with Netflix, Netflix set a new standard with respect to uh, hyper-personalization, right? Recommendation for you as a consumer. Doesn't mean you need to invent your own streaming service, right? You can use existing technologies, that's all fine. Um, so yeah, the, the technology is not essentially new, but ChatGPT is the first technology that is really, really good at emulating, I, I always argue a certain role. So in, in essence, it's just predicting the next word in a, in a sentence, right? In a sequence um, where traditional chatbots were able to do this maybe eh, if you had a sentence like, I walk my blank outside, it would fill in dog or something like, like that, right? Very obvious, but ChatGPT is the first technology that is able to do this um, not only one word, but like thousands of words, right? It, uh, words, right? it can write an entire ens- essay. So if you give it, for instance, the, the, the prompt to write something in the style of Shakespeare, it's actually much better in assuming the role of Shakespeare, if you know what I mean, right? So the quality with respect to it being Shakespearean is, um, that's, that's really impressive but your 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 question was like does it add some risks if you introduce such a component right in in your decision making process or yeah this that's kind of funny i i i think here here you see the need for ethics because uh, we were also briefly talking about the ai act uh before uh, before uh, we started the recording um so the people who drafted the ai act at least as far as i'm aware nowhere is a mention of uh generative AI or these large language models, right? So ChatGPT really added this whole new dimension and with it this whole new risk dimension to uh, the AI landscape that I would argue current regulations and also apparently future regulations are not yet uh, ready for. So here again, you see the importance of ethics, right? So um, the, the societal discussion that then always leads to rules and regulations down the road.
0: Yeah, I think that's um that's something I was actually having a conversation with with some colleagues today and we were, yeah, we were just discussing about um, you know, can can there be any tools that will um help to regulate um something like chat GP three and will yeah, will there be any way of ensuring its compliance with the regulation and is, is the regulation actually ready? But I think I was reading something small on today about how yeah, the EU's now looking so obviously put that go back to the au ai acts and include you know generative ai is potentially a high risk component so i'm Can, i'm just w- sorry what we. you gonna- no i'm no, really no, bad no, for no. interrupting
1: i just um, no, you go. i think go you, at some point you sent me an article and i started ranting that you know generative models are not new like not even slightly new um mm. and all i kept thinking was like how could they get a group of experts to put together regulation and none of them knew anything about generative models <laughs> like yeah we already had generative models in like 2014 <laughs> uh, that's mm-hmm. like 10 years ago and
0: yeah it felt like everyone well i think this is why people always have a an issue with um regulation and regulators in general that there's always a step behind or many steps behind this innovation. Um, yeah. I, think, I know that's some of the arguments of why people feel that, obviously, um, I guess public sector can't always keep up um, with what's happening. But I'm just, yeah, wondering in, in your opinion, what you think um, will be the next steps with regulation and how this could be audited or, or how you think this will be approached? Um, or just in your opinion, how do you think it should be approached, really? What do you think is the best solution for this, and like you were saying, including ethics?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I wish I had all the answers. I'm, I'm kind of puzzling this uh, this question uh, by myself, actually. But yeah, you're right. There's this meme, right? That innovation, or sorry, regulation kills innovation, right? Um, that, that's not entirely true, of course, because most regulation is actually the result of um, uh, exceptions, right? So you have a law And they have another law and that leads to conflicts and then you create more laws, right? So um, regulation is not in essence a bad thing, I think. I think usually that's a good thing. Um, So yeah, now now the question becomes, so indeed, so we have this new technology and I think indeed the AI Act is not ready. uh, Existing and current and also future regulation is not ready for this, at least didn't foresee them. It's kind of interesting. and now that OpenAI has published their um, generative models, you suddenly see all these other companies uh, like, like Google and Facebook uh, coming up with their, let's say, their version of ChatGPT, which they also were developing apparently for all these years. But Yeah, I mean, I guess really Google so... had
1: that Lambda mm. one uh, last year, the year mm. before. Um, the, the Famously, the guy that said that, oh, yeah, it's totally sentient. Look, it says it doesn't want to die. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs>
2: Yeah. Oh, are you referring to, the, to that one engineer that argued that uh, it was sentient? Yeah, or? because it
1: said that it was afraid of dying. But even from a language perspective, oh, yeah. right, if you ask someone, what are you afraid of? I'd say most people are afraid of dying. So it's like modeling language means you're probably going to say, yes, I'm afraid of dying.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the problem I have with that is that, uh, or they argue it passes the Turing test or something like that. The, the problem I have with that is uh, that the whole sentient discussion is that I can train... Uh, a language model for it to convince you with maybe like a 99% success rate that it is sentient Mm -hmm. but I can also train a model with a 99% success rate to convince you that it's not sentient right so in in, in essence it doesn't really mean anything because um, it just really depends on how I want the system to behave in relation to you right in relationship to you but we can never fully know whether or not it's sentient or not uh, because we can simply program it to be as convincing as much as that it is sentient, so it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything. Those statements.
1: Yeah, there's also other. And I think we also,
2: yeah, we have to be a bit, bit careful with anthropomorphizing these systems, right? Uh, you also see that in ChatGPT, they have they have this like this typing animation, right? Which yes. is not necessary because the output's already there. It's just to make you more convinced that you're interacting with someone or something. Yes, you Yes. Know? Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. I recently also read an interesting article about somebody. She was arguing to not allow these uh, models to use smileys, for instance, or emoticons, ah. because she argued, yeah, this emulates even more, um, let's say, human yeah, behavior. Yeah, so
1: this is something that I'm really, really um, interested in right now. So I've like, I submitted a paper, and now I'm writing another paper about anthropomorphism and, and NLP systems. Um, and yeah, there are so many things that I think the, either they emerge naturally from uh, mimicking language. So even, do you remember the Google Assistant when it, uh, they showed that video of it, like making a phone call to this hairdresser and it used like disfluencies in its speech, like eh, um, um, <laughs> these sorts of things that humans do, but there's no need for... Google assistant to to do this. It already knows the the sentence. It's not really thinking or trying to fill in space. Um, Even trying to make them be a little bit funny or laugh at jokes and even referring to themselves as I, all of these things are adding a lot of anthropomorphism to them. And these are systems that are inherently anthropomorphic because they're interactive and they use language. And we're going out of our ways to make them even more... Um, human-like to the point I mean um, mm. I could talk about this for <laughs> days and days it's really no, no you're when right think, eh? Yeah. we've
2: done everything to make these systems more human-like for the past years uh, ChatGPT is also a nice example because it displays some um, uh, functionality of what we call uh, what we call ego involvement right so for mm. instance when you and I communicate with each other we often tend to share some personal things eh? some, or some, some character traits for instance just to tell you a little bit about who I am, you tell a little bit about who you are, you know, and then we Mm can relate to each other, blah, blah, blah. Uh, This very human-like behavior, even if you don't need to. If you don't do this, then you get a little bit suspicious about this person, right? What is he hiding? Or never shares anything about his life, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of weird. And ChatGPT also does that because sometimes he says, oh, um, or sometimes he doesn't want to give you an answer, you know, straight away, or he's a little bit politically correct also, this version. So he's like... I am a model trained on blah, blah, blah. I'm not designed for, or I, I'm not allowed to do this, whatever. So he's already sharing a little bit about himself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting. And I think maybe because he's not fully human, I, I was thinking about this recently. So maybe we in our communication, daily communication, the more we get used to interacting with these kind of chatbots, maybe we as humans also become less. Um, how do you say or more adapted to communicating with these kind of systems maybe we also become a little bit more robot like in our communication towards other humans I'm not sure about this this is just an idea but could, could would, happen
0: yeah no, I know d- I've, I've been thinking about that often as well because I think about um, younger generations obviously that are growing up with this so obviously we are different obviously our generations getting this when we're slightly older but if you're a child growing up with this and you're having this in school and this is how you're interacting. And I guess because the world is more remote now um, than it was before. And there's less of a need even to, you know, be with people in person these days uh, through work, um, school, everything. Yeah, I just wonder the effects um, psychologically this will have on a younger generation that we probably haven't really studied or would really see the true effects of until you know, another twenty years time when this younger generation are in their mid twenties or early thirties, um, how is it gonna affect how they interact, yeah, with humans? What will this mean to them and how will how will this affect, I guess, society? I'm interested to see. Or scared,
2: slightly.
1: <laughs> I, be I already, scared. You already
2: see that with uh, this generation, right? Uh, this the, the current generation. The young people are already like digital natives, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even they're asking questions like, what, what does this uh, icon mean? You know, on my screen. And then we have to explain, yeah, that icon is actually that of a newspaper or that used to be like a, a floppy disk, you know? Uh, or a CD, yeah. And they're like, what is a CD, you know? And then <laughs> to us, that's still very... There's a normal uh, icon, you know? But to them, this is already a, a strange object. Um, so yeah, that will only increase, of course, over time. And usually the, the effects of those things are very difficult to, to measure mm. because uh, at some point in time, usually you have an experimental group and uh, a control group, eh, so to speak. Yeah. So you can do like an A-B test. But there are a lot of things in our society in which it's very difficult to find people who have never done it or seen it, you know, um, especially in the future, I think it will be very difficult to find people who never engage with technology, for instance. So what are the effects? It's very difficult to, to measure.
0: measure.
2: Yeah. Same with the effects of porn, for instance. Like, it's very difficult to find people who probably never seen that in their life at least once, you know. So.
1: I was just thinking about that, because I was reading um, this book, The Right to Sex, and uh, it was like a collection of essays, kind of, and in one of them she's talking about porn, and porn as a like an educational tool for kids, and that uh, in a few years, most people will have had their first sexual experience, for example, with, with porn, and how does that colour... Um, everybody else like everybody's sexuality in the longer term and so um yeah that's a very interesting parallel with people who grow up so used to interacting with with chatbots and with technology and um i even think about the whether it might really um sort of narrow down the like idea of like creative writing and that sort of thing that might also be significantly affected we might sort of have this language that really tends towards the the mean and the most efficient and average <laughs> kind of language i don't know <laughs> i wonder I wonder, although language is not always um strictly practical, but uh, yeah I think it's a, an interesting parallel, and yet, like you were saying we can't really measure it because we don't have a
2: yeah. The main worry I have, if I, if I have a worry, uh, I think you also asked me, eh, what, what do you think are my worries? Um, the biggest danger I see is that like all communication, all human communication is essentially faulty communication, right? So when we interact with each other, if, we, if I, me talking to you, you talking to me, uh, me writing a letter, for instance, we're doing our utmost best to, do our, to put our thoughts, eh, which are already probably faulty, um, to, to communicate that to other people, right? And there's there's always a loss there. There's always a gap. There's always something that gets lost, or you you put things wrongly, and then it doesn't lead to the expected outcome, you know. And then you reflect on that, and you're like, oh, I made a mistake, or oh, I didn't mean it like that, you know. But that is essentially how. Pro- yeah, yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> and, but this is this is often perceived as a as a struggle or as a as a as a barrier or something. But this, actually, this is what progress is, right? So. Basically, um, my, my endeavor that is, that is failing actually leads to progress itself, also leads to creativity, right? So indeed, if, if, if all communication is essentially yeah, censored or adjusted for it to be the perfect English message or whatever, um, yeah, I think something is lost there in, in, in process, um, which I feel would be a shame. I think it's, it's because if you, if you see something that's imperfect, you can usually see the perfect thing emerging from it, you know? It's the same if you watch a movie. I don't know if you ever watched a movie. So, I, for instance, I watched the movie Dune last year. I don't know if you've seen it, the science I've fiction movie. I've heard
0: of it, but I
2: haven't seen it. it. It's a rather good movie. It's not Oscar-worthy. It's not Star Wars, original Star Wars levels of great. <laughs> but, and I also read the book. But by me watching the movie, I was like, mm, if only they changed this or in, if only they changed that, then it would have been perfect, right? But this idea of a perfect do movie can only retroactively emerge from me watching the do movie with all of its faults right so if if that would be curated in some sense, I think we would lose something
1: yeah, I think you're right there's also i think some I, I worry also about losing some self expression not necessarily in the losing the the words but also the way that you speak it says a lot about you and who you are mm. and the way you talk about something says about says something about the relationship that you have to that thing or that person that you're talking to or about um, and yeah that's something that's been kind of like i've been thinking a lot about well, what if we um but overall i mean i think they're
2: no you're right uh, cool also things. the best uh, the best way to learn how to speak is by writing eh? so just first you write things down and then if you do it enough times then the words kind of become you you know uh, then they become your ideas, and then it's easier for for you to convey them uh, through the spoken word, so so to say, to other people. Um, I remember in school, I always had to write down. I didn't like it, but when I had to learn other languages, like 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 French, for instance, I had to write down all these words like a hundred times. And also with uh, with mathematics, you had a lot of practice, especially in uh, in lower school, right? Uh graduate school. But in the end, it, it does get stuck in your mind, right? If you do it enough times, so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly, so I don't know, I, yeah, I, I wonder what writing is going to be like. I also think, I don't know, for now, I guess the systems will get better, but I think as good as they are, sometimes the the text, it often reads a bit like uh, business business speech, And then it's kind of yeah, like, you're used to, it's like word salad, <laughs> <don't know>. yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it's, it's really intricate. good.
2: <laughs> yeah, and also you, you remind me actually because I, I started, I think, the conversation with saying that chatbots aren't necessarily new. I think there was already, was it like a couple of years ago? There was already this, this guy who was outputting uh, news articles, I believe, uh, by means of a generative model. And I think he was publishing them in, in the, what was it again, the self help category or something <laughs> because he was, and it, it, it took a long time before he was even detected or, or he argued himself uh, that he did it. Because he was basically saying, yeah, most of these articles have a very, I would argue eh, his words, not mine, a superficial character, right? (laughs) So um, you can basically write down anything you want and you can spin it in such a way that it's uh, or appears as a wisdom, you know. Um, So uh, he believed, I think self-help was a very good uh, category for that. But now it also is extended to indeed academic um, or scientific uh, categories, right? Uh, In which now... You can write articles that are near indistinguishable from humans. You could you yep. could also turn that around, hey? You can also argue that then apparently a lot of academia are writing articles to the level of a chatbot. You can also oh, no. Uh, <laughs> no offense there, but a little maybe. No, I think yeah, I think
0: it's a, yeah, I think it's, it's crazy the the level um, of. I think the, yeah, the level of, I guess, how, I guess, good you can say the, the text is now and um, articulate it. Ke- I just keep wondering why, um, why is there such a push for us to want chatbots to be so human-like? That's what I I keep wondering. Like, what what's the psychology behind why, why do we need it to be so human-like for us to interact with it and for it to be considered, I guess, um, really really amazing uh, at this point or for it to be considered um I'm I'm wondering why we can't distinguish it just being this is a chatbot and it's able to put out this great input and outputs it's got the great output sorry and why can't we distinguish that and why do we want it to be on this human level for us to feel that it's worth interacting with because that's what it feels like the push is like we were saying to have the emojis and to have it seem like someone's typing, or even you know when you go for services, customer service, you want it. People want to feel like it's almost a person, but I wonder why that is really. Why can't we distinguish both, or have both? Basically, have the human and the chatbot
2: coexisting uh, peacefully. Uh, coexisting yeah. <laughs> the world together. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that would be great. So, yeah, I think a lot of these technological developments are driven by the desire to, um, uh, or at least by the assumption that humans are essentially social creatures, right? Which, mm-hmm. of course, we are. I'm not, I'm not denying that. Um, and so we, we want to be treated as a individual, right? With, with free will and autonomy and blah, blah, blah. So if you get confronted with a very cold system or bureaucracy, for instance, right? Um, that we, we don't feel appreciated, right? We've, we don't feel hurt. So, or well, we feel hurt. We don't feel hurt. Um, we, we typically don't like that if we are not treated as individuals uh, with with agency and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I think that the main premise is, of course, to design systems that safeguard that, right? Mm-hmm. That's the assumption. I also I spent some time listening to, for instance, what Mark Zuckerberg of, of Meta is, is saying about the metaverse and... Nobody talks about the metaverse anymore, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you noticed that.
0: It's not the but, same hype as it, I know, now no, it's no, no, no. taken over.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe it died a quiet death. So he, he also is a very strong advocate of um, sharing social interactions, right? So he believes that humans are um, essentially hypersocial. We want to share, we want to connect with others. And that's why they want to, for instance, in a Zoom call, correct your eyes, so that you're always looking at the camera. He wants you to be able to uh, share experiences instantly with your friends, uh, like a picture or, or capture a moment, share it instantly. Um, so basically make you part of the experience of another. Um, that seems to be his, uh, his premise. Um, and again, uh, kind of touching on the same argument I gave earlier, is I, I don't th- think that this necessarily constitutes progress. Uh, just because uh, he perceives, let's say, the gap between the human brain and the digital world as a as a hindrance, right? As a gap, but I would argue this is actually what makes progress possible, right? so the the, the closer we get connected to these systems, the more we lose. Um, yeah, I also wouldn't be surprised that, for instance, for a long time, let's let's say the the privileged class in society is those that have had access to technology, right? Uh, the people with uh, the latest smartphone, the latest computer. We would argue that's like the the privileged class. But I, I, I I can't really unforesee a future in which it's the other way around, that the privileged class is actually outside of technology. So those who can afford it don't have to be connected the whole time or uh, give a personal data, for instance, right? I think um, we're going to a scenario like that.
1: I think that's a very interesting um, thought that, yeah, if you're not privileged, you're, you know, have external things that are dictating what you can and cannot do and what you can have. And I guess that the expectations of, okay, for example, you should be available 24 7 or something. And interestingly, I guess there's also the, over the last couple of years, you know, the like cottage core. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the, the trend of like everybody wanting to move off grid. And I, was then, just yeah. say. I always think, yeah, Even like always yoga
0: like, retreats.
1: People yes, exactly.
0: Their yoga retreats, turning your yeah. games off and or not having their phone not being accessible
1: yeah and there's definitely yeah. more privileged people that are like okay i'm gonna buy a farm and move to the countryside in england and start growing not peppers i don't think you can grow peppers potatoes yes you're
2: right so that's what like this, this reactionary movement towards um going back to nature or, or yoga indeed um Yeah, I'm a little bit cynical about that because I think uh, that is also... I think that's not really a solution. I think that is more of a bandage. Um, For instance, you have people who are rushing late or are stressed because they are going to be late for yoga class, you know what I mean? That is kind of... That's not what you want. So (laughs) I've I've noticed a lot of these, uh, they're they're usually Eastern uh, principles or Eastern um, uh, practices like yoga that are incorporated into Western society. To basically fill the void left to us by the abandonment of things like christianity right or traditional norms and cultures so usually you have like re- retro uh, reactionary politicians who argue yeah we need to go back to how things were and you have the more I'd say, progressive liberal kind who is arguing no we should replace it by other things like like yoga for instance the irony is of course that you going to yoga makes you a more productive member of a capitalist society right so you're not really or our or neo-consumerist busy lifestyles. So you're not really fixing the core issue. You're just putting a bandage on, I would say, the problem or the problem that's for many people a problem, uh, just to function better in a very busy, stressful society, right? Well, you're not really addressing the core issue. Yeah, so you going to yoga or back to nature is, of course, not uh, not solving any problem. Maybe you feel better for a short amount of time, but uh, it's not really solving any large-scale problems, of course. It's just another. Uh, I would say uh, it sounds a bit disrespectful, but coping mechanism, right? And everybody, ha- everybody has one to some degree. So I don't judge. No,
0: I think that's, that's I actually. Uh, no, I've done I'm yoga.
2: Really... I like it. So
0: no, so do I. <laughs> In fact, we're not I hating on yoga. yoga now.
2: <laughs> I like my coping mechanism.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's a great point that you made, though, because um, yeah, people, like you said, traditionally always thinking that the the privilege are the ones with technology. Um, but we are heading into this society now that's so true where everyone's I guess feeling maybe a bit overwhelmed and anxious about you know being online all the time and having to be available all the time so we are seeing this movement like you said of people stepping away and it will be it will be interesting to see the future and I'm wondering if there will be a massive divide um, in the younger generation will will they be um, protesting against technology at some point because Maybe that will, it might go the opposite way as well. Rather than being engrossed in it, maybe they'll want to fight against it actually.
1: Yeah, there was an article on, I think, the BBC or the Guardian about how a lot of young people are giving up their smartphones. Which I was like, those are rookie numbers, guys. You haven't had a smartphone for a month, try a year. <laughs> 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 Gotta
2: pump up those numbers, yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, it does seem like they're already. At least some subcultures of uh, the younger generations who are realizing that, yeah, probably this is not super healthy even yeah this need to always be i mean i'm still thinking about memes i don't know it's like there's the really funny ones but like americans are like i'm going into kidney surgery i'll I'll be online in three hours oh yeah europeans are like attack and it's like and then europeans are like i'm i'm on holiday i I email me back in six months thank you
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think last year, last year we had this, uh, this CEO on LinkedIn, right? He, he was posting himself crying, you know, oh, I had to fire so many people just for attention, essentially, right? Um, <laughs> also, a lot of people give him flag for that. And I, I, I think you're right, because if you think about it, look, I'm not a, I'm not a techno, techno pessimist or something. I don't want to hate too much on technology, but I do think that technological progress does not equate to societal progress necessarily, right? And in the West, we tend to equate the two. I think by mistake. So not every new technological invention is necessarily or leads necessarily to societal progress, right? It's just hey, you kind of have to separate those two. And for instance, the word smartphone is also very interesting because there's already like an ideological presupposition in there, right? In the word smart. So how can you be against a smartphone? What do you then want? A dumb phone? Like how can you (laughs) want a dumb phone? And you see this in things like smart city, smartphone, yeah. Um, it's already being sold and advertised to you as, um, let's say, a, a means of progress.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I wonder. Which if... I'm, I'm very happy
2: with it. I I can navigate. I can go to all kinds of places. But me being tracked, for instance, my data being tracked the whole time. Maybe not so much, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. but I wonder if the like tech evangelists, like the uh, big tech CEOs and all of that, they have maybe a very different idea of um, progress. Like for example, with the Mark Zuckerberg being after like hyper-connectivity and being hyper-social you know like really wanting to enable that um and that's really him sort of pushing his idea of the ideal society uh, onto us or what he thinks uh, society wants or needs um similarly with the the chatbots like it might be that chat gpt is not the most efficient thing like maybe it would be better if it drew a really nice diagram or whatever you were asking for and pointed you to the right source or something like that, you know, like, it's not necessarily that that's the most efficient way necessarily. It's just this idea that, okay, uh, language is the most human way to interact. So let's make a chat. And I say as someone who works on conversational AI, so, you know, like, um,
2: yeah, I know what you mean. So Maybe for myself, I'm a techno-optimist insofar that I believe that uh, uh, we humans are are way better at uh, adapting to situations than preventing certain situations. So if you look historically at all kinds of disasters, things that went wrong, we were very, very bad at preventing them. Even though we could reasonably know they were coming or we were anticipating them already, we are much better at adapting to the then, well, maybe not so nice situation and, and overcoming it. For instance we the dutch we have a very i'm dutch we have a very rich tradition of um, uh, keeping the water out right out of our country um, uh, very famous for that that's that's i think a very nice example so um, so indeed technology can for instance help us to prevent uh well maybe uh, sorry not prevent but adapt to climate change for instance right maybe even make the condition the human condition better in the future so in in that regard i'm definitely a techno optimist but um, again, this does not equate to, our, to the improvement of our day-to-day life, right? Um, so, if you, for instance, if you look at academia, a lot of, a lot of criticism on technology originally stems from these um, Marxist, neo-Marxist thinkers yeah, that shortly after World War II were disillusioned by the, I would say, allegiance between capitalism and technology, right? Because after the Second World War, a lot of these famous thinkers like hey, Marcuse and those kinds of people, they were like, okay, you know, um, now it's time for the communist revolution. For real this time, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's a Marxist maxim, essentially, that technology will make people free, right? By automating mm-hmm. mundane tasks. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, but instead, people started to work 40 hours a week in an office, filling in spreadsheets just to create the new smartphone, you know? And, and to those people, that is uh, what, what they call illogical. Yeah? So sometimes technology changes what we deem logical in society, and that's basically what they are challenging these kind of thinkers. And yeah, I would argue in various domains, they do have a point.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I think what you were saying about techno optimists, um, yeah, I agree. I think there's actually so so many examples of technology where, yeah, like you were saying with climate change, like at my company Fujitsu. We do a, work, a lot of work on reducing co2 emissions and um and uh, with digital twin for example um and yeah you can see the real positive impact that it's having but like you said if you measure it on the day to day i think you know there's lots of examples of this not actually necessarily massively improving our quality of life um and some could even argue that in many cases it's it could be even downgrading it so yeah, I think um, also I'm, I guess I'm conscious of time that we should probably wrap up even though I could, we could continue talking about this for, for hours. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if you wanted to add anything on before we wrap up at the end as we're coming to the end of our hour
2: well the the best conversations are left unfinished i think right so uh,
0: yes <laughs> perhaps
2: we can do a, a, a follow-up in the future but um for now i would really like to thank you for for your time it was yeah, a pleasure was um being a guest at your podcast oh thank you. thank you
1: thank you thank you so much thanks for all the like really compelling um i don't know saying, Oriana. oh my god i could go on talking about this for for hours and hours there's so many yeah maybe next time we'll do a trip to the netherlands and meet you in person have to have a have a coffee
0: with
2: better. you're most welcome to the country of the netherlands for sure (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: thank you